Hey, this is David Pryor for Leading Agile Sound Nodes. So today in the podcast, we're going to focus all on UX and UX-related things. And I've got two, two guests, one from Leading Agile. So John Tanner is a Senior Vice President and Enterprise Consultant for Leading Agile. And we also have Marcy Jacobs, who's a digital service expert who works for a very impressive place. So Marcy, do you want to, maybe we can start out with you. Can you talk a little bit about what you do and where you do it, or as much as you can tell us without having to have us sanctioned and locked away in some special prison? Sure. Um, I work for the United States Digital Service, which is the group that was formed out of the healthcare.gov recovery. And it is a growing group of designers, engineers, product managers, talent specialists, um, and bureaucracy hackers who focus on really tricky problems in the government space that have a technical component and typically a policy component. Okay. And I currently lead the design group. And you and digital service experts a pretty cool title as well. It is. So what is that actually? I'm not entirely what sure what it means. <laughs> okay, I was going to ask you what we, it means. We all have that title. Oh, okay. Yeah. We all are right. all digital service experts as part of our hiring authority. Okay. Um, but my role is um, a designer and a strategist, and I really focus on the, the front end of the design spectrum, the user research and strategy and design leadership. Okay. So, Marcy, before we get started with the interview, I know there's some stuff that we have to talk about in terms of your role and what you're going to be talking about today. So can you clarify that for folks just so that we make sure we're all sorted out there? Sure, just to make my communications group happy um, that I am speaking as an individual and not as a representative of the United States government. Cool. And John, do you want to talk a little bit about the work that you do? Sure. So, yeah, uh, as you said, SVP and, and Enterprise Consultant with Leading Agile, which basically means reaching out across industry and trying to make sure we're doing the right agile practices at the right levels. And that ties a lot into UX. Uh, one of the things, one of the reasons I, I asked Marcy if she could join us was to talk about what I'm seeing in industry and our lean towards UX versus uh, design uh, and then, you know, how we can make the world a better place, which is something she's very involved in. Okay. So before we get into all that stuff, I'm going to start out with a really simple, basic question. Um, and this is something that we talked about when we were getting ready for the interview. And I'm assuming a lot of people out there probably have some confusion in this as well. Um, I come from a background where I started out working at a bunch of web shops during the dot-com boom, and there we just had designers. Then it turned into UX. Now there's UX and UI. And I honestly do not have a lot of clarity on the distinction between the two. So can can you guys help me out with getting a better understanding of that? Sure. I think there's a lot of confusion around the the broad umbrella of design. And I think when people hear design, they think, the prettiness of whatever it is, whether it's a, a website or a physical space. Um, design is a really broad area that can cover visual design, so the graphics and the colors and the fonts and the spacing. Uh, it can cover the UI design, which is how the interactions work on a screen or in a system. Um, what I think people don't typically understand or think about is that all of that really needs to be informed by the users. It is a user interface. So following a user-centered design process really speaks to the need for user research and understanding a holistic experience. So the experience that, that an individual has with a system um, is their user experience. And you can even broaden it further to a customer experience thinking about a whole suite of touch points, some that may be digital and some that may be physical or calling a help desk. 
uh, and thinking about all of that as a continuum. Okay. Can you give like a like, simple example that, I mean, to kind of help clarify that for anybody that's still a little fuzzy on it? Sure. So when you think about um, Target, the Target website has branding, has visual design, has a logo, has that color red. Um, that's the visual design and, and graphics around Target. Um, the the design of a product page would be the UI. So how does this product page get laid out? How do you interact with it? How do you get to the shopping cart? The user experience is that whole experience with target.com. So from searching to finding products to suggestions, that whole continuum of um, everything that you're interacting with and how you are emotionally connecting when you go to that site, your customer experience could be, you bought something on target.com and now you need to return it and you don't have a normal receipt because you got it through the mail and you might have to call somebody. And it's that all of those different touch points that form your overall brand impression and your overall experience with that, with that vendor or in my case with an agency. And so that blends into real life as well, because they might, if like you said, if they're going to the store to return something, they're also going to have experiences in the store. Does the thinking extend that far out into the physical world? Absolutely. I mean, once you start thinking about the design of experiences, whether they are physical or digital, you start redesigning everything from bathrooms to salad bars to, and I've done both of those, um, just <laughs> thinking about really what it, it's around watching people's behavior and looking for those frustration points and seeing where things break down. Where okay. is there confusion? Where is there an opportunity to make something better and, and using those kind of observed or learned pain points to inform everything that you do with your strategy. Okay. So Marcy, I'd like to ask, how do you design a better bathroom? Cause I've been thinking about this for years. <laughs> so this is the one that's driving me insane right now. There's a new movie theater at the mall near my house and it's beautiful. It's, you know, brand new. They have a 20, 30 stall bathroom, women's bathroom, which always has a million people in it. And all of the doors are weighted to swing shut. So there's always 15 people in line and most of the stalls are sitting there empty. So if you just design the doors so that empty was open, then people would realize what bathroom was available to them. And that's something not a lot of people are going to think about when they're putting that kind of stuff together, I would imagine. I've got lots of other bathroom examples if you want to get into <laughs> the things that keep me up at night. I mean, you see those low-flow toilets, the ones where you flush one way for one thing and another way for another thing. Most people push down on a toilet when they flush, but that's the one that is for the less likely bathroom experience. So it's not accomplishing their goal of saving water because of the way they designed it. It's a simple design change that I should write a letter about. So let's take something simple like a website. Um, when I used to do that kind of stuff, the client would come in, tell us what they wanted. We'd build it, give it to them, we're done. But it sounds like what you're advocating is going to involve a lot more stuff like focus groups or whatever where you're actually seeing people who are interacting with it, taking their feedback. and No focus groups. No? Okay, so what do we do? Focus groups, bad. <laughs> focus groups, I mean, focus groups have a place probably typically more in a marketing brainstorming type of environment. Okay. It's always interesting when you say a client tells you what they want and then you build it and then, you know, you hand it to them and you're good to go. Um, 
if the website is something where people don't really need to interact, potentially the the client may know exactly what they want to communicate and that may answer the mail. But I've very typically seen a disconnect between what a stakeholder thinks they need to communicate and what they think is important and the actual questions that an end user coming to that site may actually have. So having those conversations and really knowing who are you building this for? What do they care about? Yeah. Like if you think about a hospital site, they want to tell you about their departments and all of their great doctors. And a patient is like, where's the parking and is it free? <laughs> so how do they get this information? I mean, if it's not focus groups, where is it going to come from? It's definitely not focus groups. It's, it's talking to patients. It's talking to the real people. It's watching the way people come in with questions. It's looking at what questions come into the operator. What are people asking that isn't answered on your website? Okay. That's where you should be focusing your effort. So it's always a mix of, I mean, if you have an existing thing, how are people using that thing? Whether you have analytics or you have training, potentially, that people are asking lots of questions. And then also watching, okay, we're hearing this question over and over. What are people actually doing and where are they getting stuck? Where is this breaking? Okay. So, Marcy, and what, is that... Is that your general approach, just the organic collection of data? Because when we worked together before, um, there was a lot of, you know, group interviews and things like that. Uh, was that the right track or, or did I misread it? Group interviews. I think group interviews are helpful when you have a lot of stakeholders. And sometimes stakeholders aren't in alignment or may think that they have different opinions when potentially they're saying the same thing in different ways. So that can be helpful for stakeholders to hear what other stakeholders are saying and to hear that maybe they're not all different. But when you're actually trying to understand what people are doing, so for example, on an intranet site, every stakeholder wants their link on the homepage. That's like their big thing. We won't be findable unless we're on the homepage. And intranets are like the, the such a missed opportunity across government. Um, but when you actually talk to users and get them to tell you what they're looking for, what are they doing most of the time? What questions do they have on a regular basis? What links are they actually looking at? And in a sea of potentially 200 links, what have they ever clicked on? I think there's a perception that the more information you put out there, the better it is, the easier it is to find things. And it just makes it harder for them to find what they care about. So you're, you're really a big proponent of user-centered design then. Absolutely. So you guys are going to have to unpack that one a little bit for folks too, because what is what does that actually mean? User-centered design. Or how would you define you, it, I guess? User-centered design is putting your, your audience at the core of every decision that you make. So when you think about, and I'll talk about a system that I worked on at my, in my past job. Um, it was for a group of FBI agents and local law enforcement when they were working on command post type activities. So something bad had just happened. Something had blown up. Someone was kidnapped. Something, something bad had happened. Um, understanding the people who are actually interacting with the system and understanding their mindset, the stress level, the fact that they don't want to be sitting in a command post, they want to be outside running leads really understanding their behavior completely changed our design course, completely changed the way we thought about it. 
And when I came in to pitch this client and to talk to them about what they were looking for, they were asking for UI. They were asking for prettier forms and their forms were ugly. But when they were talking about what would really make this successful, they wanted to decrease the amount of time and money they spent training. They wanted to decrease the amount of agents that they had to send for a deployment because it was so hard to use that they had to send people to basically enter data because people couldn't figure it out. The users couldn't figure it out. So making pretty forms would get them a little bit of the way there. But when I actually watched in a command post what really happened, there were so many problems with the way they had thought about this whole, if you build it, they will come, they will understand. Maybe, but not if you're in this super high stress environment where you've got to get it right and you've got to get it quickly. You don't have time to learn. You don't have time to understand the workflow. And their shelf life of training was maybe four hours. And that's crazy, right? Because there are literally lives in the balance there. And it's really just about deciding how is this going to be used? How can we optimize around what the problem we're trying to solve is instead of just, you know, let's do some CSS or let's put a nice JPEG out there instead of making it pretty, making it work. Right. I think that's really a key point is zooming out from the features that you talk about. And I think that's something that we see in backlogs and we see in UI designs, the beautiful you know, designs of pages or widgets or, or functions, but really having that end vision of what are we trying to solve? What is our end point way down the road? We don't need to know what it looks like just yet, but we need to understand the principles that we're going for and what is our overall strategy to get there. So we're trying to make this something that stands up without any training, without any support that you can enter at any point in the cycle. You don't need to start at the beginning of a workflow. Once we had those basic principles and once our development team had come and watched where things broke down and really understood the pain that the system was causing to the users, they were much more empathetic in their ability to interpret the design and see the problems that might come out of the way they were building software. So John, I have a question for you. When you're on when you're working with clients, how do you help them develop that level of mindfulness when when it comes to paying attention? Well, actually either one of you could answer this, but how how do you help people under you know get to that point where they're thinking about it that way? Because you're talking about a much more enlightened and mature way of understanding the experience people are going to have in their own context. And like you said, having empathy for them. I mean, that's, that's a big deal. It really is. So, so I'll answer and then and I'll uh, defer to Marcy for her answer. But uh, what we do is we start at the top level of the flow. What are we, what are we working on? What are we truly working on? So what's our annual plan look like? And is that taking into account how people are using our products or is it all based on ROI or some sort of return? And we see it in federal too. So agencies, We'll say like Veterans Affairs. They they might have uh, they might have a goal that they're going to reduce homeless veterans by X percent by the end of the year through the tools they're putting in the market. So it's a noble goal, but they don't always go through the steps to understand how do these homeless veterans have access? Is it mobile devices? Is it libraries? Is it something? I mean, they're they're homeless. So how do we get this in their hands? And watching them struggle with that problem is the same thing we see in the commercial space. No matter what your goal is, if you don't fully understand the steps to get there, whether that is ROI or increased user signup, if you're not going through the steps that people take to access your site and you're just looking at pretty features, then you're not actually going to get the value out of the other end. And that to me is where UX really, really comes in. Both vetting what we're doing is right on the front end, 
But then also coming out of the other side of it, how do we make sure that we built the right thing now so that we can we can go on and do better the next time? So, Marcy? I think that there are people on the team that have some flavor of the title designer, and they might be the ones creating the artifacts or running the user testing sessions, but everybody needs to have that empathy and including the entire team at parts in the discovery, whether it's through the initial um, research phase, whether it's the, the iterative user testing that you're doing on a hopefully regular cadence so that developers can actually see the impact of what they're building on the audience that is supposed to be impacted. When I uh, was in my last job, I, I had a developer who had built this internally facing tool sit in a room. I didn't let him speak and watched him um, sit with two users of the tool he had just built, struggle and try to figure out how to do just basic things. And he said it was the most eye-opening experience for him because so much of it in his head just made sense. He'd been thinking about it and talking himself kind of around the logic of it for, for weeks while he was building this. But when he actually put it in front of the intended audience and they were looking at it going, I don't know where to start. I don't know what I should be able to do. I can't answer my questions. This doesn't really map to my needs. His mind was completely altered and it changed the way he approached the fixing of this software to make it much more in line with the people, the humans who actually work with it. Okay. So sure. oh, go ahead, John. Oh, it's just to say, so I know, I know working with the digital services group, they're very much, you know, forward leaning. They're definitely leaning into that UCD space. Um, do you find uh, in your past life working with other organizations, how would you get them into that mindset? I mean, I've pulled clients into user research sessions. I've pulled lots of people into kind of understanding, and maybe it's the quotes or the video clips that come out of the research, but really trying to humanize the product and not making the effort around we're going to ship software, which obviously is something that you also want to accomplish, but what is that software enabling and really tying the effort back to the mission for whatever agency, whether it's EPA or FBI or whatever it is. When I worked on the system for the command post operations, it was very front of mind to think about the cases that these people were trying to solve and bringing the, the customer into those conversations and having them start to understand where these barriers existed got them to think about the process in a very different way. And not only the customers, I mean, you made a very good point there. Developers have to understand the pain their users are going through. I've experienced that many times over where we have developers that have a clear idea of what the product is, but they don't actually understand how the users are using it. So when you take that developer and have them sit and watch users, uh, it changes their entire mindset. But don't most of the people well, that you guys deal with think that they know? I mean, th they all seem to have this, I, the ones that I encounter, they have this idea that they know what the user needs. Um, is that... The stakeholders, I think. I, I typically see that from stakeholders. Okay. Um, I see a lot of developers and engineers who may just kind of take the stakeholder vision as this is what we're going to build. This is what we're going to run with. Um, and it doesn't take much to get the engineers to appreciate 
where things might be slipping. And it's always such a great turning point where I have an engineer look at me and say, well, would this design make sense to a user? I'm like, oh, you're, you're drinking the Kool-Aid. I love it. <laughs> um, I did have a project where I had a stakeholder, um, a client who had developed this crazy Excel on steroids type of application. And it was something that you downloaded from their agency website and then you were supposed to use it to do all kinds of modeling and she wanted it to be prettier and easier to use so that you knew how to get from tab to tab. And it was just a beast. And I was asking her questions around, why would somebody download this? Like what task does this map to? Why would somebody know to get this thing and how to get it and how to install it and all of that so that they could use it? And she completely dismissed that and said, you don't need to worry about that. I just want it to look better. So she had trained some people in her office on how to use this tool maybe six weeks before we met. And I said, well, why don't we sit down with two of them and just watch them use it? And she sat in the room and we started by me just asking, do you know where to go to get it? And they didn't really know how to access the tool that they'd been trained on. So once we solved that, I said, do you know what you would use, what you would do with this? Like, what would motivate you to actually go and find it and download it? And they were completely stumped. They didn't really know how to use it. They didn't know why they would use it. And it was so eye-opening for her to understand the basic need that people had wasn't really being met by this tool. So we could make it really pretty, but it wasn't answering a problem. So this is a really significant thing, though, because at an organization, if a, if a company decides we need to, you know, create this site or make this change or add these group of features, that's driven by some understanding at a senior level of some gap that they have or some need that they have to fulfill. And I'm assuming that that's usually done pretty far removed from the people who are going to actually use it. But in the process of creating a project... They've got to get funding behind it and prove, you know, prove that it's going to be valuable and they're going to prioritize the work based on their assumptions about ROI or whatever. But that's not in any way connected to what you're talking about doing. It's not. And I would, I would flip that to say that the features and the solutions should really be driven by that understanding of the problem, that understanding of the audience. And I have had that conversation a lot when we talk about portfolio modernization this concept of let's pick up this legacy or this, you know, collection of legacy things that we've built and rebuild them in some new shinier platform without ever really doing the analysis or research to, to understand what's being used in this legacy portfolio, what really needs to be rebuilt and where are the gaps that would actually help you move the needle with efficiency and improved quality. And I think it's thought of as a purely technical problem and not a human problem. And every system that we're building has some human, whether they are an internal government worker or an external citizen or a consumer of a commercial site, there's always a person who needs to do a thing. And if you don't understand that, you're just guessing at what features might be cool. So, is so that that's something. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry, Dave. Just going to say that's that's something very interesting to me, Marcy, because I deal with that a lot. Changing that portfolio mindset. Uh, so, do you interact a lot with those, you know, the executives or the product managers that are feeding that portfolio? Uh, when we go to either 
you know, modernize our existing portfolio or create a new product? Um, how do you how do you focus with those guys to change your mindset? Because I find that developers come on board pretty easy. It's the product management group that generally needs a little help understanding, you know, what the new shift is, what the focus is towards human design and away from system design. I think it gets back to what are you trying, like, why are you modernizing? What are you trying to accomplish? And typically there's some type of improved efficiency, improved ROI type of metric, or that's something that would certainly appeal to people if that isn't what they're thinking about as their kind of initial driver. So understanding the behavior of people in that portfolio, potentially seeing And this is where you get into that customer experience. If you're looking at a portfolio of systems, a lot of these systems are built in silos. They're built all with their own credentialing, their own huge amount of overlap and duplicative content with a lot of similar systems. So for an end user who has to go through all of these hurdles over and over where you may go from system A to system B to system C and then to system F, to have to go through step after step over and over can be extremely frustrating. Thinking about it, it in terms of what are the, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it gets back to that question. A lot, a lot of organizations, federal and otherwise, they lead with ROI. What's our return? And it might not just be financials. There might be some other return they're looking at. But they get so blinded by that metric or number they're supposed to hit, they don't realize making good human-focused decisions actually drive that number up above what they're predicting. So this isn't so much that they don't under. It sounds to me like it's it's more not that they don't understand the problem, but that they don't even understand that they don't understand the problem. Agreed. And so I just taught a CSM class today, and I went through like five different ways of prioritizing work, and none of them had anything to do with this stuff at all. Um, there's there's no discuss. I mean, it, there's no real discussion of watching the user. I mean, even in a class, if I'm doing personas, that's still a bunch of people making assumptions about who's going to use it and how they're going to use it and why they need it. But but getting down to the level where they're iterating on seeing people use stuff. I mean it. That's got to be challenging. And, and and also, I would imagine it can extend the timeline of a project pretty significantly because you don't really know what you're going to find when you start to pick up that rock, right? You don't know what you're going to find, but I think it can also help focus so that your timeline is is really working on the most valuable things, really understanding what are those true pain points. I love that you do personas and you talk about personas in class. Um guessing about personas is is better than nothing because you're at least giving a nod towards what is this person's motivation and frustration and resources and, and everything else that they're bringing to this. But as much as you can put some data behind those personas and not think about them in terms of this is a project manager persona, like the roles that people have or a system role. Yeah. But thinking about them in terms of like a an under-resourced physician. So this is someone who has a small practice and they don't have they don't have a ten person office staff who can help jump through technical hurdles of some new government mandate. Or this is a physician working at a very well resourced hospital that has a lot of people who can help them do these things. They are both physicians. Yeah. They're going to have wildly different experiences with a system that they have to navigate. 
So if I say that that I'm accustomed to working with people who I, am, I completely agree with what you're saying, but the people that I've worked with in the past, what they're incentivized by is not how useful is this thing, but I've got to get this launched. And that's where they get their bonus and that's where they get to make their claim. Like, you know, it might be a total nightmare. Nobody can use it. It's slow as hell, but it's there. And now you can have people go fix it. Um, but it sounds like what you'd be advocating for is not, I got it up there, but I got something maybe smaller that is actually valuable and usable and helpful. Is it's that- the V in MVP. Just shipping something and saying, you know, check that box, it's out. If people can't use it, if it doesn't actually help them, if you don't have any metrics to show that it was successful, and shipping something does not equal successful. It just means that you shipped something, which could be a giant pile of crap. So having the true definition of what does successful look like? What is the smallest thing that we can truly build and understand that moves the needle towards whatever that mission goal is? And that may be a tiny thing, but it is definitely changing what how people are evaluated, how you define success, how do you define quality? Well, and it the, makes me so sad that people just focus on, we just need to get something out here by a certain date. And that was, that has been a frustration that I've had for a long time. When you have a conversation with, with people on the team and ask them, what does success look like? And they say, we just need to ship something by the end of the year. <laughs> get I'm like, can you zoom out from that a little bit? Like in order to enable what? Well, you're also, it sounds to me like your definition of MVP is is maybe different than one that I would expect most people would have. The people that go beyond just a super cursory level understanding of what it means, I would expect that they would think, let's say you've got a range of features, you've collected some kind of customer data where they've told you, I want this the most. And and that's what people figure, well, if I'm going to launch this thing, these pieces have to be there because that's what people want the most, but that still doesn't speak to the value type of value that you're talking about, which not is not just that it's there, but we can actually do something with it. Do you think that's accurate or? I think one thing that, that gives me pause with your question is people asking for a certain feature. The things that people ask for can be very different from the things that people actually need. So if you talk to someone and you say, what do you want this to do? They're going to tell you all kinds of crazy things. But did anybody ask for all the things that are part of an iPhone? It, it's not something that it enables behavior in a way that we never thought we would even need to be enabled. And it came from understanding kind of gaps in our day-to-day life, gaps in our ability to take pictures all the time, gaps in our ability to carry all of our music around with us. Um, watching people can give you a very different outcome than asking people. And that's why I, I prickle away from focus groups, asking people what they want. They will come up with a, a crazy list of quote unquote requirements, which, which may align with and may not align with what they actually need. So you said one of my favorite words just a bit ago, you said metrics, uh, which is very important, right? For demonstrating, uh, what we're doing and why we're reaching success. So what sort of metrics in the UX world, which honestly, when you say UX and metrics in the same sentence, it almost sounds dirty, but, but what metrics do you use to judge success? Wait, why is that um, dirty? Before you answer that question, why is that bad? 
Because when people think UX, and I say people, not myself, and definitely not Marcy, but people when they like think me. UX, they think, <laughs> yeah, people like you. So <laughs> they think, they think you know, UX. That's going to be, you know, it's going to we're going to make things pretty. We might work on some workflows, but you can't really measure that. You can't really measure that stuff. That's all intangible. But you can measure you can. usage. Right. And that's that was the question for Marcy. What are, what are her favorite metrics to look at to judge okay. whether she's she's being successful with UX? Yeah, I mean it. It depends. It depends. Um, I always try to get baseline measures of a lot of different things, and it could be how many questions are we getting to the help desk? What is our what is our through rate on a certain task? Um, what is our user adoption? How much do people like or hate this thing? What type of feedback do we get? Do we get the same questions over and over and over? Um, there, there are lots of ways to benchmark where you start. When I worked on the internet at my last company, we identified the top, I think, 10 or 12 tasks that people complete out of 6,000 people on a very, very regular basis. And then we tested the current site with brand new employees and we had a 96% failure rate. So that was our metric that we were trying to improve from and we improved dramatically. But having that as a starting point to say, this is how bad things were, this is where they were broken, was really helpful in continuing to get funding and continuing to get buy-in to push that forward and to take it to new directions and make it a a very comprehensive effort. So, So, go ahead. Marcy, are you saying that it's not all butterflies and rainbows and we just judge happiness? You're saying we can actually put numbers to this? (laughs) As much as I love butterflies and rainbows, it does need to be tangible. I mean, I think a lot of this also can get down to when you think about what's going to resonate with with a a high-level stakeholder, thinking about efficiency, thinking about cost. If it takes 45 minutes for an employee to complete a task that they have to do 10 times a day times however many employees are conducting that task. And if you can get that task from 45 minutes to five minutes, you've recouped 40 minutes of productivity times however many people and however many times that translates into actual money and efficiency gains. And there can be real impactful changes there when you start designing things as opposed to just letting experiences happen. So I want, can we talk about intranets for a second? Because that's an area where I've had a lot of pain. <laughs> Every place that I've been for the last probably 10 Everybody years. Everybody has. Yeah, they, it's, they have an intranet. They set up SharePoint or something. And then at some point, somebody just flooded the thing with content and then it was abandoned. But you're told to go look at it. So does, does like the refreshing of content and things like that and the actual information that's included, is that something that you focus on as well? So SharePoint is a really great, it's a really great, rich area um, to pick on. Um, <laughs> and I've actually been in a number of situations where my company was engaged to do a SharePoint migration or modernization effort where we came in to a SharePoint, whatever, 2003 or 2007 environment. And our, our effort was to pick up all of that stuff and mo- migrate it to a shinier SharePoint 2010 or whatever environment. And we did that. You know, we, we deployed lots of engineers and they gathered requirements and they rebuilt the environment and they picked up the hundreds of thousands of files of crap and they dropped it in the new shiny environment. And then the stakeholder goes, why are there still 200 links on my homepage? And why can't anybody find anything? Because you didn't do that effort. 
that's a very different effort from packing up all your boxes and moving to a new house versus actually deciding how you want to live and what you want the rooms to be and what stuff you should actually keep. Should you have every article of clothing since the day you were born? Probably not. And intranets are a great space for people who are content hoarders and are afraid to delete anything ever. So really getting people to understand how to think about when I was working on the intranet at my last company, every single piece of content had to be tested against what question does a general employee have that this content answers. If you are just writing this for yourself and for your HR group, it doesn't belong here. It needs to be written for the average employee, for the 5,900 other people that are not part of HR. So there's this voice in my head while you're saying all this, which I completely agree with, but there's this other thing going on in the back of my head that I'm thinking of that story about Steve Jobs buying the coffee maker. Like it took him like years to buy a coffee maker because it had to be the perfect one and it was perfectly designed for his use and all that. Where I think a lot of people would get to a point where they're like, you know what? It's not great. It's just there. So that's good enough. It's not worth the time and the effort to put in. I mean, what you're talking about sounds spectacular, but how do you pitch that to somebody who is a lot more focused on just checking the box and saying, you know what, it sucks. It's horrible to use, but it's there and they'll find their way through it. Is there like a, a tipping point where it's just the effort is not as valuable or doesn't deliver the punch that you would that somebody would need to be convinced to go down this path? Because it is a lot of extra work, right? I don't know that it's a lot of extra work because I think what it winds up it's work at a different point. Okay. So for a lot of those systems that are built as a, let's just get something out there and people will have to suffer through it. Then you have all the work of training people how to use it. And you have all of the lost efficiency of people using it badly. And you have all the cost of potentially redesigning it and putting duct tape and band-aids all over it because it's never really what you want it to be. Yeah. And I am not at all saying spend three years looking for a coffee maker and get to perfect. What I am saying is that having any degree of user research and user understanding to inform the design process is better than nothing. There is definitely a, and especially within government, a happy medium of how much is enough? How much do you need to inform your design? But not, not stopping with research and then saying, okay, we know everything, we're going to go build it. Now we know enough to start doing the real design work and validating that on a regular basis okay. and incorporating user testing and user feedback into every sprint so that you're constantly getting that feedback before you deploy something is a critical step. So do you think that this, I'm still kind of thinking about um, a manager who might be reluctant to go down this path and trying to think of ways to get them enticed to follow it. Do you think that there are ways that, somebody who is, you know, at some level of management can develop a heightened level of awareness to this kind of stuff. Like you gave the example of the bathroom stall door, right? Where I would think most people wouldn't even think about that, but it's something that's become, that you're very aware of. Um, are there questions like that, that somebody could train themselves to ask to develop a better mindfulness in terms of, you know, why is this this way? Well, who does this actually help and how? I guess I'm trying to understand how a, a product manager would would be reluctant, like why they would be reluctant to thinking about 
who their audience is. And what, I mean, the pushback that I typically get is we understand the audience. We know enough. We'll just tell you what they need. Yeah. I mean, there are, there, there are typically quick, non-invasive, you know, not going out into the field ways to get feedback okay. and going to things like help desk logs and talking to trainers to understand what are the questions that you get all the time what are the problems that you're actually hearing from people that they're running into can give you some more data to then say, we're concerned about this disconnect or we're concerned about this problem. We want to investigate that a little bit more. Can you give us some time to do some discovery and to actually talk to users to just soundboard and make sure that we're going in the right direction? I think there's this perception with agile that you can just build something, get it out there and then fix it. And, you can build things quickly, but as long as, uh, unless you know that you're building the right thing, you could build something and then have to change it and then have to change it and then have to change it. And it's, it saves you a lot of time actually to make sure that you're going in the right direction before you're going at speed. I think I, I would say that I think a lot of people on the agile side, they think we can build it, you know, fast and hopefully what we put out there is of a decent level of quality, but there's an expectation that we're going to keep iterating on it until it's right. But my experience has been that those iterations and those drives for changes in, you know, whatever you're including, they're not always as grounded in the level of awareness that you're talking about having. It's just like, well, we got to add this piece. We want to add that piece because this department said we have to include it. Um, but I really like what you said about there being simpler ways to go collect the information. Like it doesn't have to be this massive effort of collection. You can just go talk to a few people to get some sensibility about it. Absolutely. I mean, the closer you can get to your true audience, the better. For this um, system that I was working on with FBI agents, talking to people in the hallway who were not under any type of stress, who did not have that frame of reference, was a little bit helpful, but nowhere near as helpful as talking to the actual end users. But you can be very creative with how to use surrogates and how to get data from other channels. It's just really important to get that voice of the customer, that voice of the end user, and make that a part of how you inform all of your design decisions and your priorities for development. I'm always very reluctant and scared when I hear, you know, stakeholders are coming in saying, I need this feature and I need this added and I need that, to be able to push back nicely and to say, how does this align with user needs? What is prompting this feature request? What problem are we solving by adding this thing? Because more features, the same as more content, does not mean that it's better. It just means it's got more stuff. Okay. So can I give you a hypothetical situation and you tell me how you would handle it if it was different, if it was you that was in charge of this? Sure. So John, maybe you can comment on this one as well. Um, so I worked with a guy who, who had a team that had to build um, software for a POS system that was going to go in floral shops. And so one of the things that the guy did was he's got this team of developers and he sent them all out to work in the flower shop each for a day so that they had some level of experience of what it's like when you're trying to use the existing system, what problems do you have? But the only people that went were the developers, okay? Thinking that the developers drive what's going to, what features are going to be included and how it's all going to be presented. I'm assuming that you would say that that is not enough. I mean, sending the people is probably good, but just sending developers is not good. Who else should be a part of that? 
Well, I love that 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 even happened. I think that that's fantastic to actually get into the actual space and into the context of what happens in a floral shop and how do orders come in and how do you how do you handle that day to day reality? I would imagine that the developers are approaching that from more of an engineering perspective of how does the software currently work and what do we need to think about from a technical standpoint. And hopefully they are also absorbing some of the human side of it. But as much as we can partner an engineer with a user experience researcher, a user-centered designer, someone who can actually do that contextual understanding, that ethnographic research, they are going to be picking up on very different things and paying attention to very different things so that two partnered together can really come back with a much fuller picture. Okay. John, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, so I've seen that uh, throughout my career. A lot of times we send developers out to do the shop work to actually work with the systems. And that is very good. It gives them context around why they're building these things. Uh, but it has to come in at all levels of the organization, really. If you're if you're working on the requirements for some system, no matter where you are throughout that pipeline, from, from initial conception all the way out through delivery, you need to have the context of your users. One very big example I have of that is uh, several years ago when I was working mostly with the Air Force uh, building you know, data systems, what we found was the developers had no idea what the data was, what the reports were. The analysts had a little bit of idea because they used, they used one part of the system. What it really affected was people on the ground in the field you know, literally determining whether there's an IED in their path or not. And the developers were so disconnected and the chain of command on how those requirements were coming in was so disconnected. We didn't realize that there were literally Marines on the ground relying on the reports. So walking through the entire system and getting the entire chain, the entire, you know, from the very beginning of how that report's going to be formed out to how do we develop it, everybody has to have context and it has to be a unified context. Otherwise, we get disconnects throughout. So I want to ask one question, then I'm going to come back to that. So, um, Marcy, for what you were saying a moment ago about the UX person with the developer, so this because this might be another simple thing that somebody could do to kind of shift behavior, where some people might send out the developer. If you send out a pair, UX and developer, um, together they're going to be able to form a more wholesome understanding of what has to be done or what could be done. Is that agree? Okay. Um, and it doesn't add any additional time to your schedule. It just adds a, a different resource and a different perspective. Okay. And so, John, with what you were talking about, how does what, what is a way, like a tactical way, that somebody could develop or map out that process, like that whole flow? I mean, that's because that's a pretty comprehensive way of looking at things, and and I think not a lot of people would have that that view of it. How do you get that? So, what we did at the time, and what really worked well for us. Uh, we sent myself as a as a development lead uh, along with our requirements manager, and we literally flew to Korea and we we started looking at how people were using things there. And then we had deep interviews with people in Afghanistan and Iraq on how they're using them in the field. So we weren't just talking to the analysts, which were local. We were talking to the people in the field, getting the end result of the the report, the product, right? And it's so the reason I really wanted to get Marcy on to talk about this. In the corporate world, if we mess up, we might lose some ROI. But in the federal world, if we mess up, we might lose some people. So it's very important to understand this UX thing goes way further than just profits and 
are we building the right product? It is literally life-saving stuff. Uh, as she was talking about with the FBI group, it is critical decisions have to be made fast. And if they don't have the tools to support those decisions, uh, you know, we all lose in the end. But it does carry into and the it's interesting. World. Yeah, please Well, go what on. I think is interesting is the corporate world has adopted UX because they see the return on investment to their sales. You know, they're selling more widgets when it's easier experience when it's an easier process for them. And in the the government, they're not selling things. So for them, it's even been a shift to get the federal market to understand that they have customers, they have end users, they have people who rely on the clarity of their information, the ease of their systems, and their drivers may be different. It may be more around cost savings or efficiency or not having a horribly embarrassing article written about them in the post, um, as opposed to increased revenue. But they are starting to definitely realize that they have customers and that they have um, maybe a different focus, but a huge importance in, in understanding who their users are and improving that experience. I think on the ad, I mean, on the agile side, there's another aspect of it as well. There's a big push right now where people are saying that we've kind of lost sight of the agile manifesto and people are just going through the steps. But a lot of people would say customer collaboration is how can I get the developer to talk to the product owner or to the stakeholder, but you're advocating for actually talking to the customer. And especially when lives are at stake, because having more empathy, like you talked about the FBI thing, and I'm thinking somebody who's out in the field dealing with some crisis situation, it's a lot more than just, is this an easy to use interface? You've got to think about all the stress that they're going through, you know, whatever else is happening around them that's going to create that dissonance in their head while they're trying to do their job. Exactly. And how do you simulate that to do user testing? How do you get to a point where you can actually validate some of these concepts? where maybe you have two alternate designs or two ways of showing information, what is going to make the most sense when you're in this high-stress environment? So it was a very challenging and very rewarding project to work on. And when I heard from a member of the child abduction rapid deployment team, the CARD team who uses this system, uh, and they said that some of the changes that we had made would actually help them return a child to their family faster and help them close a case more quickly, it was it was extremely validating to think, it, it's very tangible, it's very real, to think that there are people who are using these systems that we make to get benefits, to make decisions, to solve cases. And save and lives. The, exactly. And the, the better we, we are informed and the more we think about that through the design process and not just think about, I got to get this out the door by whatever date, the more impact we're able to have. Cool. So I, I want to ask you guys each one, one more question. Um, if you could just push one piece of information around this topic into the entire planet's head to help shift the way that they think about stuff or look at stuff, what for each of you, what would that, what would that be? For me, it would be design is so much more than making something pretty. Design is how it works. It's how you interact with it. It's, it's all of the different strategy and pieces. It's a very upfront process. It's not an 11th hour skinning of colors and fonts. Okay. And John? Yeah, I would, I would follow on that and say that takes an organization fully understanding that idea. It can grow in small groups. You can have a small team that does UX really well. 
But if the enterprise, if the organization, if the agency doesn't fully embrace the idea that we have to understand how our end users are using it, uh, they're going to lose out. And then especially in the federal space, the rest of us are going to lose out. So it's extremely important to understand. I think it's really curious. Like, I mean, maybe 50 years from now, if people look back at this time, there's so much that we're asking of the way people work and the way that they think about work and look at work. Like so much change that we're kind of demanding at once between you know, agile or you've got design or UX or all the, all the other things that are kind of centered around making it more human focused and things like that. It's a massive ask of the world to kind of shift its thinking about this stuff. Um, do you guys think that it's kind of actually happening or is it just people are realizing it and, and being frustrated by it? Like you're frustrated by the, you know, the stall doors. Hmm. So, I think I think it's happening. I think the maturity levels are all over the place. Um, but I think the same way Agile is focused on providing real results and focusing on getting to value as quickly as possible, UX is focused on understanding what really is the value. How do we, what problem are we really trying to address? So the two are very, I think they're seen as at odds with each other because UX is looked at as a big, slow process that takes forever and it's going to derail all the sprints and we need this big discovery phase. And it really is something that can be time boxed and thought of as a very incremental parallel process that, that integrates very nicely. Yeah. It's about changing the way we look at how we develop software, not only software, how we develop everything. Um, it is, it's, it's a big ask, but it's not too huge. And what's funny is federal government led us for a long time. The reason waterfall got so instituted was because the DOD made that part of the way they work. And that's been released recently, uh, since 94. And that's when agile really started taking off in the federal space. And though they're behind the corporate world, uh, as we saw with healthcare.gov, uh, they can lead it again, uh, if they have the right support and the right attitude which is why I'm very thankful there are groups out there like Marcy's group helping shift that federal mindset because uh, ultimately that's going to be the test, right? Does this actually work? And does it work on systems that we need every single day of our lives? You know, the people that are saving lives, does it work for them? And then the rest of the world will follow. They usually do. Yeah, I think it's important at the federal level. I guess I also, I mean, even something like the stall doors, thinking about things at that level, I think is going to have ripples throughout everything that we do and interact with one another, which hopefully will be a very positive thing. Um, so thank you guys both for doing this. Uh, Marcy, if, if folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you if they want to follow up and ask questions about this? Um, probably through LinkedIn would be the best way to, to connect with me. Okay. Marcy Jacob, Marcy Jacobs with a Y. Okay. And John? So you can always reach me at john.tanner at leadingagile.com, or you can find me on, on LinkedIn. My username is TannerJS there. But I would like to give a shout out to one of our speakers coming up, uh, Agile DC. Dave Nicolette is going to be speaking on October 24th. So if you're in the DC area, if you're in the federal market, please show up. Uh, we'd love to have you there in front of the room. Cool. All right. So I'll include links to all that and including the event in DC. Um, thank you guys both for doing this. I really appreciate it. This was a really cool conversation. Thanks. I hope I didn't form the way you look at bathroom stalls for the rest of your life. <laughs> I will. I will be reevaluating every bathroom I want. I know into. you will. <laughs> Once you have that lens, it's hard to take off. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, you guys. Thanks so All much. Right, thanks.